This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and great fortunes have been made by the medical industry and healthcare professionals when it comes to providing reproductive care, namely contraceptives and abortions, which was actually intentional as the advent of the American Medical Association led to the demonization of midwives to provide reproductive care, care that was often provided by black women who were seen as competition to white male doctors. The concept of personhood and abortion is, in modern times, a history of white male control over women's bodies, and maybe in the past as well. As a kid, this was explained to me by my mother, as her mother, my grandmother, worked in a Detroit women's shelter a century ago to protect women from abusive husbands, from violent policing, and to protect a woman's access to an abortion and an abortion provider that my mother and grandmother referred to as an angel of death. The history of personhood and abortion is complex, long, complicated, but as today's guest argues, one constant has been the desire for men to control the lives of women. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with Brianna Mir, who wrote the Sapiens magazine article, An Archaeology of Personhood and Abortion. Opinions about fetal personhood and abortion have fluctuated enormously throughout history and differ in surprising ways between cultures. And this will be very surprising to you, as it was to me. You can find Brianna's article at sapiens.org. Brianna is a master's student in biological anthropology at the University of Central Florida, as well as studying mortuary archaeology. As an emerging bioarchaeologist, she is interested in how integrative approaches can be used to address questions of personhood, identity, and agency in the past. In particular, she investigates how these factors may have shaped and influenced a person's lived experiences. Brianna received her BA from the Australian National University in 2019 and has undertaken field work and research in the Philippines, Vanuatu, and Australia. You can follow Brianna on Twitter at Archaeolobrie. So let me spell that out for you. A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-B-R-E-E. Archaeolobrie. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how have you been over the last week? It's been awesome. Well, it has it? Yeah. The well, wife it's... and I uh, took the train down to Harold Washington Library. Oh, did you? Yeah. It's a world-class library. It is a world-class library, and those owls are so large on top, I'm waiting for them to pick it up and take it somewhere else. Is that what they are? Yeah. Owls? I uh, thought they were gargoyles. Yeah, I know. Exactly. You have to find... Uh, I think it's a POV episode on PBS about the competition that led to them picking the Harold Washington Library design. It's really fascinating. Helmut Jan had one. Uh, the architect Calatrava, who made the Milwaukee uh, Museum of Art, the new uh, modern wing of their uh, art museum up there, he had an entry. There are a whole bunch of different entries, and it's really fun to watch that show and say, well, that's the one I would have picked, yeah. and realize eh, they picked this one instead. So what did you do down at the Harold Washington? Yeah, they have um, models of those alternative oh, do they? Washington libraries up there, like on the seventh floor. Oh, okay. Well, we just went down there to work. We are up in the atrium, which not everybody mm-hmm. even gets up there. It started to rain. It was like being in a reverse 
glass bottom boat. Got to see the rain. It was real pretty. Oh, I bet. That's really cool. Did you go to the little museum they have up there of the Harold Washington mural campaign? I didn't think to. It's really weird. It's a tiny, tiny little room uh, just off of the atrium, and they have a lot of the racist propaganda against Harold Washington in there, uh, including from, what was his name, Bernie Epps, the guy who ran against him in uh, the mayoral election. And uh, some of the stuff is just insanely racist. Like uh, one of the things that it said was uh, if uh, Harold Washington becomes mayor, they're going to change the name of the CTA to the Soul Train. What? I am telling you, you have to check out how ridiculous the racist literature yeah. is. I got to check that out. Oh, and speaking of which, I got some racist literature in the mail last night. My downstairs neighbor, for whatever reason, got this fake newspaper by the Republican Party, and it said, in our next, and the sidebar it says, in our next issue, the crime issue. And then it's just a picture of two black men. Yeesh. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, and I'll be rough. telling people about that on Patreon tomorrow. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, as I was saying. Uh, so real quick, Dan, uh, can you drop off copies of your comic book, The 50 Flip Experiments, so listeners can see them and maybe purchase one or two during This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. That's really a drink and think that happens every Wednesday evening between or beginning at 6 p.m. and going until at least 10 p.m. at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. You gave me a couple of copies that I can show to people, but I want to make sure that I have the ability to sell people copies if they'd oh, like yeah. to buy them. Yeah, that's an easy easy sell. I'd love to do that. Yeah, and uh, just remember, Dan, we never take any commission on the sale of any artwork, unless it's donated to us, in which case we take 100% because, hey, it was donated to us for the purpose of raising money for the show. So uh, you're going to be able to drop by some more copies of 50 Flip Experiment, which people can find at 50flipexperiment.com? Absolutely. Fantastic, because uh, I was talking to Lindsay about it the other day. She started reading one of your uh, things online at 50flipexperiment.com. By oh, the way, dang. I do love your very high-tech website. Yeah, it's pretty 1993. It's awesome. It's really great. I'm so glad that yeah. you actually designed it to make it look like that, because every so often you stumble across <laughs> one of those websites, and you just that's think, oh, that's kind of cool that that's still an artifact that's remaining from the 1990s but then you actually designed one to look no, like no that. that's very flattering i'm actually old I have, like <laughs> a, I have a bash script that like uses the said command to write the html every time i um, update so it's so uh, you don't have to deal with it exactly i don't have to touch anything after <laughs> I, after i press the button yeah so when did you start that website that specific website was 2015, yeah, so. slightly changed from the one that was going from about, I mean, 2005. So, like, that's that's going to be a little bit old web. We still had Flash back then. Yeah, <laughs> we still had Flash. We still had real audio. Yeah. Uh, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? <laughs> are you working on a dazzling persona? Nah, mine is good already. <laughs> mine's pretty, mine's all right too, I guess. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever. This is hell merchandise you want. This is hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, uh, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This is Hell Guide to the 21st Century uh, flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support, and we need your support now more than ever because, as it turns out, uh, paying our staff a living wage is admirable. 
but not so great for our bottom line. So please show your support for This Is Hell and our staff receiving the bare minimum of what can be considered a living wage by either subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, the super true discovery of a questionable part of the human brain. A questionable part of the human brain. And now a word from our sponsor, and as we are completely listener-supported, Our sponsor is you, a listener who goes by the name of John, just John, writes to us saying, Chuck, thought you'd want to read the linked article interviewing Jay Famiglietti, the executive director of the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan, and interview Jay on This Is Hell. The article, which is posted at ProPublica, is titled, As Colorado River Dries, the U.S. Teeters on the Brink of Larger Water Crisis, and is subtitled, The mega drought gripping the western states is only part of the problem. Alternative sources of water are also imperiled, and the nation's food along with it. The article is very cheerful and should provide listeners the welcome respite from all the bad news of the day. Or not. Really enjoy the show. Thanks, John. No, thank you, John. And upon receiving your email, we immediately contacted the author and are waiting to hear back about his or his uh, interview guest availability as early as next week. So, John, and everybody else interested in the Colorado River and great U.S. water crisis, tune into tomorrow's Patreon podcast for an update or tune in next week. Uh, And, again, you can tune in next week, but remember, Monday is Labor Day here in the United States. It's Labor Day weekend this weekend. We are not doing a show on Labor Day Monday. Instead, Next week, tune into the free show at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, with our Patreon podcast moving to Friday. In other words, despite taking a day off, we will still provide you with four hours of live free content and another hour plus on Patreon for our subscribers. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Brianna Muir on and uh, what bioarchaeology reveals about the history of personhood and abortion. Again, the question from hell is, what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and fame, rich and powerful? What dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, Jeff Dorchin delivering a moment of truth. And we'll tell you who we've scheduled to be on next week's Labor Day week of shows. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell Abortion has a very long and very complicated history, dating back long before Roe v. Wade or its recent overturning in the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. Not only in the United States, but around the world, spanning cultures and millennia, abortion and the concept of personhood has been complex and complicated 
here to guide us through some of that history, Bianca Mir wrote the Sapiens article and Archaeology of Personhood and Abortion. Opinions about fetal personhood and abortion have fluctuated enormously throughout history and differ in surprising ways between cultures. You can find Brianna's article at sapiens.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Brianna. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Uh, so just to begin with, this is a really general question, but because people probably are not familiar with the term bioarchaeology, what is bioarchaeology and how can it inform us on our understanding of abortion and personhood? So bioarchaeology, and I'll just preface this by saying, like, I'll be talking about North American bioarchaeology. Um, the term bioarchaeology is a little bit different in the UK and Europe. Um, but bioarchaeology within North American anthropology is um, kind of like a subsect of archaeology, where we specifically look at the human remains, so like the biological, physical remains of a person, um, in context with uh, like their mortuary remains and the greater context of a site. Um, the idea there is that by integrating the two, we can get a much clearer, um, much more uh, accurate picture, let's say, of uh, history in the past. So, um, oops, sorry, you go. No, no, that, that's all right. I was just going to ask you why, how and why does it differ uh, between the United States and other areas like the UK? Um, so there's a couple reasons. Um, the biggest thing to keep in mind is that um, anthropology in the U.S. is kind of like, a, like they call it the four field subdisciplines. So anthropology is like the umbrella term for like archaeology, cultural anthropology, linguistics, and bio um, sorry, bioanthropology. So it's kind of like that, like um, I guess academic split of how the two uh, disciplines like developed over the 19th century. You write that after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, states have been increasingly grappling with what it means to be a person. Georgia recently passed a law granting personhood to fetuses as soon as there is a detectable heartbeat, while a judge in Arizona blocked a similar law. Meanwhile, a pregnant woman in Texas argued she can legally drive in the carpool lane because, according to state law, her fetus is a person. So how much does our, because I don't think people have a grasp of this, how much, I know I didn't, how much does our understanding vary on the subject of when a fetus becomes a person? Does the current state of medical science have a solid opinion on when a fetus becomes a person? Um, so the short answer is no. And um, as you'll read in my article, the longer answer is that it's very cultural. Um, so like the question of like, when a, does a fetus become a person is really a question of when does personhood start? Um, and what are the bounds of personhood? Um, personhood is very cultural um, and it's much more, there's much more variety to personhood than I think we envision of in our kind of like Western ontology or Western thought of what constitutes a person as well. And you point out that arguments about fetal personhood have been key to the abortion debate since Roe v. Wade was argued in the 70s. That landmark decision case determined a fetus became a person only when it was viable outside the womb. But Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito wrote in his recent ruling in the Dobbs decision that drawing the line of personhood at viability is arbitrary and makes no sense. Is viability more, any more or less arbitrary than, say, 
believing personhood starts at conception or with the te- detection of a heartbeat is all are all of the ideas when it comes to personhood are they all to some degree arbitrary oh that's a good one um Thank you. I, I, I appreciate you saying that. No, I was just going to say thank you for saying that that was a good question. I'm glad I asked a good one. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I agree with the word arbitrary, be- just because like personhood is very like personal, like sorry to keep using that word person. Um, and it's something that it's, it's very important. Like as much as we take personhood for a given, um, it's, Sorry, I'm trying to think of how to articulate this well. Like it's like 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 we are people. It's like it's our it's 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 got this idea, especially in Western, like once again, Western thought and Western ontology, that like personhood is like something inherent, right? So I I, I don't like I don't like the word arbitrary because I feel like it kind of like diminishes how important these issues are to a lot of people. Does that does that make sense? Yes, I do. That does make sense. Because arbitrary does sound like you're just making up a random idea, out just grabbing something out of the blue instead of thinking about it and putting any mm-hmm. kind of deeper thought into it. So how much do these ideas of personhood vary globally? Uh, does it vary from political system to political system, from culture to culture? What has the greater impact on the varying opinions of personhood? Is it all about politics? Is it all about culture? Is it something in between? Is it all of that combined? It's. I'd like to say it's all of that combined. Um, so you've got, and just to like make it clear, like I'm talking today about anthropological personhood, which is very much looking at like the cultural conceptions and notions of personhood um but then legally you also have legal personhood um and i i would argue that like legal personhood is very much influenced by our concepts of like cultural personhood um so like in the west we have these ideas of our personhood as something that is um like very like individualistic it's very singular and it's very indivisible um, and I think a lot of people like to think that our personhood is like fixed, like it, it's something inherent to us. Um, but like cross-culturally, even with other cultures around today, like that's not always the case. And in fact, personhood can be um, very different culture to culture. Um, so like one of the first things to keep in mind is that personhood isn't just limited to people. Um, so in many cultures, especially many indigenous cultures, um, there are like personhood will be bestowed to animals objects uh the landscape um i was actually talking to one of my colleagues earlier this week um and she was saying in her research uh, a lot of amazonian cultures don't actually feel that there is a distinct uh disconnect between them and their environment so like their environment is a person to them as well um and so when we think like like when we think of personhood in the Western thought, like we have this very kind of narrow idea of what it is. When for many people, it's much more broad. Um, so is that individual? Is that individualistic nature of it in well, let's just say in the United States, is the individualistic nature of that understanding of personhood in the United States is that unique? Is that not the universal concept when it comes to personhood? That that is another good one. Um, I would have to say from my research, um, I I wouldn't want to be making any big universal claims. Um, Within 
like before anthropology started being like reflexive about um how we were thinking about these topics there was definitely this idea that like our concept of the individual was kind of like like the the base idea um but as more and more anthropological research comes out it seems that like there is much more variety than we initially anticipated i i hesitate to say you know whether we're in like the minority or the majority for how we like conceive of personhood just because like a lot of this research is still really ongoing um sorry that that's a bit of a cop out though yeah no no it's totally okay you also point out that in some cultures a person may be a mosaic of divisible parts and their personhood is believed to morph morph throughout their life and as you're pointing out for the wari in brazil personhood emphasizes the emphasizes the physical body and interconnectedness and individuals created through the continual exchange of bodily fluids and their personhood changes as fluids from other individuals are integrated into their bodies yeah this is really cool um <laughs> this is probably just me talking as an anthropologist but um there's this like I mean, there's so many interesting concepts of personhood in all of these cultures, um, but it's this idea of like, once again, like it's rather than personhood being like fixed and singular, there's this idea that it's like divisible and it's like, like you said, very fluid um, and that they can kind of like, like their personhood changes as they go through all of these different relationships and that they can actively um, negotiate their personhood depending on um, who and how they transfer these body fluids as well and these bodily sub substances, sorry. Um, and it's just, I don't know, I think it's just like a really interesting way to look at it that like we, like once again, wouldn't necessarily assume from a Western point of view. You know, you were saying earlier about personhood and believing in the, like in the Amazonian uh, societies that you were talking about, believing in this interconnectedness with the environment and the person, the idea of personhood. So can the idea of personhood, I mean, obviously it seems like it does, but how much of an impact does the idea of personhood then have on other concepts we may have, like uh, environmentalism or sustainability or climate change? Can the idea of personhood affect other ideas that and other concepts that may be challenging uh, for us at this time? Um, I would definitely think so. Um, I'd have to think more on that environmental angle. That You're full of great questions today. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, but like, I guess the first thought off my head is the, the, the concepts of identity and agency that come inherent with concepts of personhood. Um, personhood, like all three of these concepts are very interchangeable with each other. Um, and I think this idea of agency with personhood is really important as well. And it's what we really start to see coming to the forefront in uh, a lot of these modern abortion debates as well. Um, there's this really great quote in this fantastic essay by Lynn Morgan um, called uh, Life Starts When They Steal Your Bicycle. It's a great essay. I recommend it. Um, but she states that all practices of personhood are political gestures played out in a social matrix in which, in which power is unevenly distributed. Uh, and I think that political aspect of personhood is really important um, because as much as we like to think in our Western thought that like our, like, like our concepts of personhood are very fixed, um, when you stop and think about it, then they're, they're not necessarily um, like um, just as easily as um, a lot of societies can give personhood to like non-human persons. So like, um, for example, in the West, um, a lot of us have pets these days and many people, I, I don't think it's unfair to say would like treat their pets like people, like they're bestowing a form of personhood onto their pets. 
But then conversely, um, you can strip personhood away from people um, through things like slavery, uh, incarceration, um, even people with certain disabilities. Um, so I think it really, personhood is really important, not only to the abortion debate, but to many of these political issues more broadly. So I know that this is kind of a chicken or egg question, and I apologize for that, but does a collectivist society lead to collectivist politics and a collectivist idea of personhood? Or does a collectivist idea of personhood lead to a collectivist society and politics? Does our idea of personhood affect our political understanding or does our political framework affect our understanding of personhood? Ooh, that is a chicken and the egg. Um, I would argue just personally that maybe the culture influences the politics a little bit at first, but I do think it's one of those feedback loop things where like the culture influences the politics and the politics influences the culture. Um, and it's, oh, that is a good one. <laughs> so is the, yeah, I, sorry, you go. No, I was just going to say is, is the, well, you write that similarly, some cultures in Papua New Guinea see personhood as fluid, divisible and exchangeable. Each person is in the constant state of becoming and being and can be thought of as fractal in nature, writes archaeologist Nyree Finley. So is personhood then something to be achieved? Is it something to be earned and not something to be granted? Is that one of the larger cultural differences when it comes to an understanding of personhood, that it's not something to be granted but something to be earned? I think that's a fair statement um, for at least some cultures. Um, so, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this later in this discussion, but um, in a lot of cultures, not only present, but in past, there is definitely like a granting of personhood or a personhood that is more fluid and uh, contextual to the relationships of a person around them. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, yeah, sorry. I know <laughs> I just, lost my train of thought there, but it is definitely um, in many cases, like not something that's like inherent so much as it's like earned or granted um, often. And you often see this on kind of like a, an age spectrum. Um, so um, stages of personhood are gained as people become older, um, which we'll discuss, I'm sure, a little bit later. But and, yeah. and you point out how archaeologist uh, Jessica Cerezo Roman examined funerary contexts among the ancient Hohokam in what is now uh, Arizona and found shifts in concepts of personhood over time. In the pre-classic period, the Hohokam, uh, they distributed uh, cremated remains as possessions along social networks, among social networks, suggesting they had a relational sense of self and considered remains to be part person, part object. In the classic period, they dis deposited ashes as a single unit in a single place, indicating their views of personhood may have been more bounded and individualistic. So do you have any sense, does the archaeological record, does it reveal any sense of how long it takes for the, these ideas of personhood to change? Are they always in flux? Do you think it's something that people are always considering and it might be always changing? Or does it take millennia for these ideas to change? Okay. Um like, once again, I don't want to be making, like, universal statements because, like, with something as, like, I guess inherent as personhood, it is going to, as you can imagine, like, very, very widely, not only across time, but across culture. Um, but we are, in a lot of these times, talking about, like, very slow changes over longer periods of time. Um, but, like, once again, like, this is very variable. 
um, not only to the culture specifically, but also um, to external forces that may, um, I guess not like influence the personhood directly per se, but like influence maybe the trajectories of some of these cultures. But like, once again, it's very, it's very hard. Like, I, I know that these are cop-out answers. I'm really sorry for that, but it's very hard to pin down a lot of specifics when we're talking about like such wide ranging, like um, variations in not only culture, but in time as well and geography. So do we know how long religion has been at the heart of debate over abortion and personhood? Has faith always conflicted with the practice of abortion and the understanding of personhood? Or is, is this uh, relatively new in human history that organized religion or religion in any uh, case, uh, faith in any way, has played a role in our understanding of personhood and abortion? Has this always been part of the debate or is this something that's new? I would argue that it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, so we don't really, like broadly, we don't really start to see like the the moral um, objections to abortion until they start to appear in like the medieval times of Europe. Um, there's, there's like some, there was definitely philosophical debate as early as um, like ancient Greece and ancient Assyria um, as to, um, issues with abortion but in these earlier times we see um it's less to do with the fetus itself like they're not making these well sorry and I shouldn't I should once again I shouldn't um make blanket statements even in ancient Greece um we did have um at least some philosophers who would argue um that like like sorry I lost my train of thought there um try not to make blanket statements but we do see in a lot of these earlier cultures that um, concerns about abortion are less about the fetus, if they're about the fetus at all, and more about the denial of a legitimate heir to the male in the equation. Um, so, for example, um, in ancient Greece, um, like we know abortions were happening. Uh, we have plenty of uh, ancient texts that describe not only that abortions were happening, but like how to bring them on. Um, all of these um, like recipes for different like um, herbal tinctures that they knew could bring on um, intentional miscarriages. Um, we even have records for like surgical abortions. So like this isn't a new thing. We have all this evidence going right back into ancient times. Um, but where we see it in legal codes, so where we see it in like um, saved legal texts, it's virtually always about the man in the equation and how the woman having the abortion has deprived him of an heir or the state of an heir. And I think from the start, that's a bigger issue. Um, whereas we don't see religion start to come into it until uh, much later in the equation or much later in the time depth. And you also write that numerous written records from ancient Greece, Rome, and Assyria indicate that for the most part, the personhood of fetuses and young infants was delayed and not guaranteed. So do we have any sense of the idea of a fetus being a person? Is that relatively new, according to the historic record? Or was the concept, uh, does it have a, a long but inconsistent history? Um, so I would argue it's definitely, it's definitely, like, like as a majority opinion of, like, the fetus having personhood, that is definitely a newer idea. Um, there were definitely some Greek philosophers who argued that, like, life began at conception and therefore, um, like, all abortions were, like, um, morally reprehensible, but they were definitely in the minority. Um, most of the time there was, I mean, it, 
ancient Greece is in many ways a lot like today where there is just like such a wide range of opinions on the topic. Um, by and large though, throughout history, there was this real idea that the fetus wasn't even really a living thing per se until the quickening. So until like the woman began to feel the baby move. Um, and that before that, like um, there was this idea that it's like, th th there's potential there, but it's not, they, they didn't see those like early fetuses as persons in their own right. But the quickening happens uh, generally. I mean, I know that it varies from person to person, from woman to woman. But the quickening happens at about 16 to 20 weeks. The first heartbeat, again, this also varies, as uh, past guest Kate Mann just recently pointed out on our show. This also varies, uh, but it can generally happen around the sixth or seventh week. So how new is this? Kind of, or So which one do we know? Do we know which of those is more accurate when it comes to medical understanding of when the fetus becomes a person? Is either one a good indicator of those two ancient and, and new, of the ancient and newer idea of when a baby becomes, or when a fetus becomes a person? Is either one of those any more accurate than the other? I think that's a very, very, it's a very good question to start. And I think that's a very like personal and like culturally contextual question. Um, so there's this, um, in a lot of uh, modern reproductive anthropology literature, there's been a lot of focus on these ideas of like relational personhood in regards to fetuses. Um, so in that the personhood of a fetus is really relational on like the situation around it, if that makes sense. So like, um, if, if a pregnancy is wanted, um, then personhood is going to be put on a lot earlier or uh, bestowed a lot earlier than perhaps a pregnancy that was unplanned or unwanted. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind with that as well is that the modern abortion debate is obviously, it, it's set in modern times and we have a lot more, we have so much more technology these days than what people in the past would have had access to. Um, there would have just been no way in the past for people to know that, um, like, you know, the heartbeat, as you said, it is debated, but it starts around like six or seven weeks, depending how you once again define what a heartbeat is. Um, but then like, once again, like I do think that is a very, um, very culturally and very, uh, very culturally contextual and very personal question. Um, and I mean, just looking at like even medical literature on the topic of abortion, you can see it's like, it's not a, it, it's a very wide ranging debate in a lot of ways in that because it is such, um, in many ways, a highly charged emotional um, topic, there is, of course, to be understood, like, such a range in opinions on it. And, like, once again, I know that's, like, a real cop-out answer, but I, I do think it's one of those real philosophical questions that's, like, like, I would hesitate to put a universal answer on. You write that in most cases the Catholic Church implicitly condoned abortions that occurred before the quickening of the fetus until 1869. That is until the woman feels the moving of the fetus. So do, what happened in 1869? What changed the church's understanding of when personhood began? So that um, that is correct. Um, in the med Middle Ages, um, just to begin with, like, like the, the Middle Ages and medieval times, um, I think people have this 
idea set in their minds of what that was like. Um, but I mean, we have many, many texts that do describe abortions happening in that time um, and like methods to bring it on as well. And we've even got like um, um, some like texts about, I think like saints um, where they, they mention um, doing abortions to save the life of the mother or um, in cases where the fetus has already died in the womb. And these abortion cases aren't penalized, which I think is really important to remember, and especially in the context of the modern abortion debate, where I believe um, it's just in Texas, they've just passed, there's like no exemptions whatsoever for any kind of abortion. Whereas, you know, even in the medieval Middle Ages, they recognized that abortions were an essential part of healthcare, where the mother's life was at risk. Um, and some texts even suggest that like exceptions were made for pregnancies that came from sexual assaults. Um, so it's crazy to think that there are um, some states in the US that have more draconian abortion laws than in like the middle of medieval Christian Europe. That is, um, that is really frightening. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you're talking about uh, saints committing abortions in order to save the life of a woman. So I, I, I hate to put you on the spot like this, but, but how uh, grounded is the religious opposition here in the United States against abortion? How grounded is that in the history of religion? It's it's a, like it's a very new, it's a very new in many ways. Um, I guess, like, sorry, I lost my word there. It's like, it's a very new development in many ways. Um, like, don't get me wrong. In the Middle Ages um, and medieval times, they there was discussion about how abortion was considered immoral, um, and um, there was, of course. Um, uh, like Christian theological discussion around that. Like, like don't get me wrong. Um, but like I said, like even then there were these exemptions for these like specific cases. Um, and like you said, like they didn't, the up until the quickening, because culturally that was when they recognized that to some degree personhood began during this time, that up to the point of the quickening, it was either like, tacit, like tacitly, sorry, um, it was tacitly approved before, approved before that i'm so sorry <laughs> i just lost my train of thought there it is a modern development in that um these laws only like you said the um catholic church only really started having a hardline abortion opinion in 1869 um and i think it's important to note the context in which those changes start to happen um in that we start seeing a lot of um other social movements happening around the same time um Sorry, you go. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's that's okay. So you're just saying that the, there was a new concept around the uh, around 1869 for the Catholic Church, and it was uh, impacted by the social events that were taking place around the church at that time. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you uh, also write that the first known abortion laws appear in the Code of Hammurabi, written in Assyria in 1772 BC. Uh, Assyrian women were punished for aborting their fetuses, but fathers were allowed to kill newborn babies, indicating the law was designed to control the woman's right to choose rather than to protect the fetus. So we are speaking with Brianna Muir, who wrote the Sapiens article, An Archaeology of Personhood and Abortion. You can find Brianna's article at sapiens.org, and you can follow Brianna on Twitter at archaeolobrie. So uh, from the very first known written laws pertaining to abortion, there would seem to be evidence that the legality or criminality of abortion 
was about controlling women. Is that consistent throughout history? Is this the way abortion is and was viewed, the way personhood is viewed, about coming up with concepts, whether it's about abortion or personhood, that will then control women? Is that the one thing that seems to be consistent throughout the historical record? Um, Unfortunately, yes. and as I mentioned a lot in my article, um, it's not just it's not just a gender issue. It becomes a really um, really racialized issue in a lot of regards as well. Um, so, like you said, the Code of Harambe, um, we we start to see like even in like the earliest law codes, we see that like the choice to have a child or to not have a child doesn't fall to the woman; it falls to the man. Um, and we see that throughout ancient Greece. Um, and where it gets really interesting is that. In Greece and especially in Rome, we don't start to see any kind of real crackdowns on abortion until um, the leaders of these nations start getting worried about demographic concerns. Um, so, for example, um, in ancient Rome, we don't really see many crackdowns on abortions until the third century um, under Emperor Caracalla. Um, and they specifically started having these crackdowns because Rome started to have concerns about outside empires um, and the fact that Roman women weren't having enough Roman babies. Um, So once again, it's kind of that idea of um, controlling women to have babies and specifically controlling citizen women to have more citizen babies. Really, that's the part that you're writing that really was because uh, I, I thought that that would was a more of a modern concept. I didn't had had no idea that it's always seemed to have been something about how to control women. Uh, one of the points that you make in your story that I found really fascinating, and especially I wanted to ask somebody who has a background in archaeology about this. Uh, you write in the Greco-Roman world, evidence broadly suggests abortion was accessible and permitted most of the time. Uh, the main contraceptive in abortifacent was a plant known as silphium, which was so popular it was minted on coins and driven to extinction. In cases when contraceptives or abortifacients weren't accessible or successful, exposure or infanticide were options, though how often this occurred in the Greco-Roman world is a matter of debate within the archaeological community. So what does that tell you? What, what, as an archaeologist, what does that say about uh, about anything when it is put on a coin? What does it tell you about silphium when it is minted on a coin? What do representations on coinage tell an archaeologist like yourself about whatever is being represented? So I'll preface it by saying I'm not a coin expert, um, but just from the get-go and the readings I've done, it at the very base indicates that there's an economy around the, like the trading of this particular plant. Um, and given that the main like you said, the main use for this plant was its contraceptive and abortifacent properties. Like that was well known. That wasn't a secret or anything in these times. Um, and the fact that it was minted on these coins, like I said, indicates that there's an economy there. And then the fact it was driven to extinction, like indicates that it was very popular. So like, this isn't like, this isn't a secret at the time. Like people know that this plant is something they can get that will allow them to family plan. Um And also um, another thing to keep in mind here is once again, like even back in these ancient times, we're seeing issues of like intersectionality um, in that everyone knew that these plants, and it wasn't just silphium, like we have plenty of evidence for other, um, like other herbs and other uh, like mixtures and quote unquote potions you could get 
to bring on miscarriage um but we know that like um they had many other methods as well just like in texts of like hippocrates serenus and Tertullian. um but once again you have these issues where like everyone knows that these herbs um have contraceptive or abortifacent properties but then like who gets to access those you know what i mean um you need money to buy these like herbs um and you need to have the agency to be able to buy these herbs um which is once again another layer of control in this situation and another situation where some people are going to have access to this kind of reproductive health care and others won't so is the reproductive health care then is it uh, even dating back throughout history, going back to the Greco-Roman times? Is it always? Uh, it, it, does it always come with a sense of privilege? You talk about uh, um, looking into the white Protestant middle class of the 19th century and doing investigations where you find in outhouses used jars from or used bottles from what would be uh, abortion pills. Uh, other evidence that there were abortions taking place has abortion generally throughout history been something that is accessible to those who have privilege i i would definitely i would definitely argue so um and i mean like um it's not just economic privilege it's also like knowledge privilege um in the medieval um times we did see um a lot of these um like quote unquote witches in these communities who um had knowledge of herbs that could help with these issues um and who had the knowledge and the ability to gain these herbs for people within their community, but then they were tried as witches and very much punished, once again, in the name of control. Um, I think, unfortunately, there's always been an aspect of privilege in these discussions, um, and I think it's definitely one that we should keep in mind, like, like, of course, not only in the abortion debate today, but also looking historically at these issues as well. And let's talk about that. You just mentioned witches. You write that as talk of abortion methods grew more private, abortion and contraception increasingly became the purview of women's cultural and folk knowledge, particularly through midwives and uh, witches who were periodically persecuted. Herbs appear to be the main abortive method, according to multiple medieval medical and pharmaceutical texts. So is women's cultural and folk knowledge of abortions then due to the fact that abortion was becoming increasingly a punishable offense? Are midwives uh, historical artifacts, if you will, of the outcome of men and their institutional attempts at having control over women and women trying to take back that control over their reproductive lives? Are midwives a historical artifact of women trying to have control over their reproductive lives and taking that away from men? Ooh, that I haven't thought of it that way before, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, I do think, um, and I mean, like historically as well, we do have to keep in mind that um, like like throughout deep history, like childbirth and um, issues of reproduction have generally been the purview of women. Um, in the modern day, these issues are very much medicalized and like, um, like, like technologically mediated. Um, Whereas um, in the past, um, like childbirth, for example, was very much an intimate family issue um, where like women were supported by the other women close to them. Um, so that's a really good way of looking at it, actually. And I, I would personally agree with that, um, that these like women's folk knowledges are passed along as ways for women to support each other. Um, 
even in the face of like lacks of agency. That's really good, actually. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, you write. I sound. I think I'm smarter than I am. Maybe. Uh, so you write that in many regions in the Western world, the 19th century was a time of change for ideas surrounding fetal personhood. Uh, d- developing uh, medical science and obstetrical uh, research moved concepts of fetal development away from plant-like natures and toward new concerns over the welfare of embryos. So did modern Western science lead to more restrictions on abortion? Do you think that was its intent? Was modern Western science the rationalization of patriarchal control over women and attempted finding evidence to support men's claim of control over women's lives? Because a lot of people say that, you know, the early stage or the 19th century uh, science was all about trying to rationalize or justify Uh, Things like colonialism and, uh, you know, uh, indigenous genocide. So to what extent uh, was was the modern Western science the rationalization of patriarchal control over women and attempt at finding evidence to support men's claim of control over women's lives? Obviously, these are like complex issues, but I would I would agree with that statement. Um, as I mentioned in my article, um, the AMA, the American Medical Association, was actually formed um, in regards to the anti-abortion movement. And I think that's, that's one thing that really surprised me, um, especially coming from a background where um, I'm not as familiar with American history. I do have to admit I'm a, an Australian, so I've been playing a bit of catch up on a lot of these. Um, But the idea that the AMA formed specifically about this issue, um, I think definitely like adds credence to that statement. Um, And you're absolutely right. Like um, science, like even persisting up to today, but um, especially from its roots in the 19th century, are definitely steeped in concepts of colonialism and racism um, and sexism as well. Um, It's just, yeah, yeah. It's a rationalization of a whole lot of horrible things. And you quote archaeologist Andreas Lotucha Kozub saying uh, that uh, contemporary accounts suggest that one in five 19th century pregnancies may have ended in abortion. Today, 49 of every 1,000 pregnancies by black women in the United States end up in abortion. Among Hispanic women, it's 33 per 1,000. Among white women, it's 13 per 1,000. But as you report, one in, as, and as uh, archaeologist Kozub says, uh, uh, one in five 19th century pregnancies may, may have ended in abortion. That's 200 per 1,000, which is five times higher than the group, which is the most likely to have abortions today in the United States. So to you, what explains why there were so many more abortions? Is it simply the laws that currently control women's reproductive rights? Is it simply technology when it comes to contraception? Or is it more than that? Ooh, that's another good one. Um, I hate that I keep saying it's a complex issue, but like I, I feel like that this is a really complex issue. Um, and that it's one of those issues where like, like, like we can't understate the importance of the, the social context that these things are happening in either. Um, I, I have to say, like, I, like reading through, like, like I said, a lot of this research, I was really shocked and surprised by a lot of it um, in that how relevant a lot of these um, arguments seem to today. Um, yeah, oh, that's a good one. Um, sorry, leave that with me for a minute. We can circle back to it. 
<laughs> All right, feel free if you uh, think about it. So uh, you write that after the American, American Medical Association formed in 1847, the group moved to demonize abortion and make it illegal, thereby establishing the medical profession as morally and scientifically superior to traditional female-led reproductive care. So was the American Medical Association's founding then, what was it a patriarchal project to take women out of a leadership role when it came to reproductive health care? Once again, I think that's a, like like I would say that that's definitely part of the issue here. Um, it, it's it's really interesting to see like the history of like the AMA and like seeing how this of like evolved over time. Because once again, it's a very it's a very very active and interesting um, social context that this is happening in. Like we've like just had the Civil War, um, and there are a lot of fears of demogra- demographic replacement um, happening here. Um, so one of the the biggest moves, um, well, I mean, there are multiple moves to the anti- anti-abortion movement during the 19th century, um, one of which is fear over demographic replacements. Um, so there's been a lot of really interesting um, research about this. Um, but this idea that because some of the biggest, I guess, I don't know if consumer is the right word, but some of the biggest users of these, and like, once again, like, prior to these abortion bans like like it wasn't like this was kind of like an like a like a secret like you could like like uh, like abortion um inducing um or they're called menstrual regulators um like these were advertised openly like people could buy these menstrual regulators which everyone you know wink wink nudge nudge knew exactly what they were for um and especially if you're like a middle or high class white woman who may have more access to resources than others um, hence leading to the fact that it seems that white Protestant women at this time were like having the most abortions out of everyone. Um, and um, in the context of um, the post-Civil War, um, you start getting these demo- like these fears of demographic replacement. Um, so you don't only need more babies being born, you need more white babies being born. And I think that's like the key part of one of these issues. So first of all, taking away the agency of the woman to choose. And then, like you said, also pulling women away from areas where they might have power or control. Um, Because once again, this like idea of midwifery um, being like women supporting women um, by medicalizing pregnancies and taking the women out of it, you're, I would argue, definitely robbing agency from women in this regard. And you mentioned that the modern anti-choice movement has deep ties with white supremacy and white nationalism. This is echoed throughout history, from ancient Rome criminalizing abortions only when the empire needed a population boost, to the 19th century U.S. outlawing abortion partly due to fears over transformations in racial demographics. To what extent do you think those opposing abortion and a woman's right to choose recognize being anti-abortion as to some degree racist do you think they recognize the racist components of their anti-abortion feelings or do you think that you know they are just they've rationalized and they've become true believers in an opposition against abortion generally and don't even recognize the racist component i i would i think it's a, like once again it's a little bit of both like i i, I don't doubt that there are people out there who have gen, genuine moral um, objections to abortion and like they truly believe that they're like fighting for the right of life to these what they call babies um, but many of us recognize as fetuses um, but I 
I think it's naive of us to also assume to like to not think that at least <sighs> that is a good one. I'm just trying to think of how to articulate how to articulate it. Um, like I said, there's definitely people who I think, like I said, have those genuine moral concerns, but I think it's naive of us, especially on the left, to not realize that a lot of these people also have racial concerns in regards to this. That like, once again, here in the 21st century, they're once again worried about these demog demographic replacements. Um, so I definitely think it's a little bit of both. Um, sorry to like always keep saying that. I feel like this is such a nuanced issue. No, that's, that's, that's completely fine because it's off. You know, often we have these binary choices of it's one or the other, and I really like it when people come on the show and say, no, it's not one or the other. It's a combination of those two things. It's a complex issue. There's an intersectionality. So I really appreciate that. I've got one more question for you, Brianna. Brianna Muir uh, wrote the Sapiens article in Archaeology of Personhood and Abortion that you can find at sapiens.org, and you can follow Brianna on Twitter at Archaeolobrie. And what we do uh, with each and every one of our guests, I promise, Brianna, uh, we, our final question is what we if you thought those questions were good our final question is what we call the question from hell the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response you write if the contemporary anti-abortion movement were purely about protecting life and personhood it would simultaneously fund welfare programs advocate for gun control and support the ab abolition of the death penalty among other things ultimately as anthropologist Linda Lane states personhood is fundamentally political. How much of a mistake does the uh, reproductive rights movement make when they try to frame abortion scientifically rather than politically? Should the anti-abortion movement, would the, or should, I'm sorry, should the uh, reproductive rights movement, should it reframe their discussions all within politics? And do you think they'd have more success with that argument than they do with any scientific argument? Oh, that is a question from hell, hey. Um, thank you. Um, so I, I would agree with that. I, I do think that we need to be thinking about these issues more politically. Um, and I also think, um, and I say this is like a radical leftist myself, I think there's a lot of, in some ways, naivety in the um, pro-choice movement that like somehow framing it rationally is going to um, influence th these issues, if you know what I mean, um, when like personhood is fundamentally political, but it's also very personal and there's emotions tied to that. And I, I, I do think that in addition to trying to frame these arguments uh, rationally, we do have to start thinking about them uh, politically and perhaps like in, like, like in contrast or in addition, like also thinking about it emotionally, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Brianna, I really appreciate you being on our show today. You have been a fantastic guest, and I really appreciate the honesty and integrity that you bring to all the uh, answers that you gave to us, to the many questions I have for you today. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I know that you said this the first time you've done a radio interview. You've done a fantastic job, so congratulations. Thank you so much for having us be the first uh, show that you've ever appeared on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and enjoy your long weekend as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell, if what you just heard from Brianna Muir on the big history of personhood and abortion. If that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually, for God's sake, you learned something, or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, 
Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. At least this week it's on Thursday. And this podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. By, uh, all you have to do is visit thisishell.com and click on support to show all, find all the ways you can support completely listener-supported thisishell.com. But please become a subscriber to our Patreon podcast, which happens every Thursday. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far, if we have any newer responses. Sure, we have healthy response to this question Sweet. from hell, which is, what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? Are you going to reveal your dazzling persona in the uh, next tween? In the next tween? The next segment, yes. Yeah, sorry, tween is an old radio oh, word I see. for that. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll think one up. I will do that. All right. All right, we got Das Classist over at Twitter <laughs> saying, rude prole. <laughs> Petre Gustador says, Max Power, CEO of Pharmadyne Limited, maker of weaponized pharmaceuticals. Also, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good connect for hookers and blow on K Street. Holy wow. cow. Wow. <laughs> Who said that? That was Petre Gustador coming in hot. <laughs> yeah, it was very hot, Petre. <laughs> Chundercat says, Tex, Van, Tex Von Braun, the cowboy astronaut with a DOD contract to build space lasers. Do the lasers work? Who cares? I've got four. $42 billion. <laughs> wow. Fred Bow just has a little animated gif of beloved icon Ernest P. Worrell by Jim Varney. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, don't hip- know. <laughs> I guess that's how you're going to go. Yeah, that's how he's going to go. He's got a little hat. I can see the appeal. Sure, sure. Hypocrite Reader says Fidelio. <laughs> All right. Oh, we got John saying sweet and fresh carpet cleaner and trauma specialist. <laughs> Third Cloud says, uh oh, curmudgeonly progressive. Wonder who he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Paolo Sorbello says patient zero. <laughs> <laughs> Sean says Massad sex kitten. Aaron Barmer says I am Liberace. We got a lot of these. Chris Kozak says NFT creator and incubator. Sledge Sledgenade says painter. Maybe garbage man. <laughs> All right. And that, that does it for Twitter. Sure, people who are offering services to the rich and famous, that makes sense. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can find out all find all of our stuff right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams weekly again and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you sign up right now, you don't just get this week's Patreon podcast or this week's and last week's Patreon podcast. You get over 200 Patreon podcasts, which feature not only a new monologue, each and every one of them not only features a new monologue by me, but also an interview from our archives that is not available anywhere else online. So while our archives online have about eight years of shows, we have been featuring uh, interviews from before those eight years. You can find a whole bunch of interviews online at thisishell.com. But you can also, uh, if you are a subscriber to Patreon, our, our Patreon podcast, patreon.com slash thisishell, then you get access to 
couple hundred more interviews that we've done on the show, including all of our interviews with Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky. So on Thursday's Patreon, tomorrow's Patreon, it's another edition of This Week in Hell, our increasingly weekly segment on Patreon when I reveal what I got out of This Week's Hell, which is likely not what you got out of the show because, well, you and I are very different people, and one of us, likely you, is way smarter than the bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host of This Is Hell. So subscribe and hear my take on our discussion with Trillbilly Worker Workers Party's Terrence Ray and his report from his hometown in Kentucky on the recent flooding and the uh, impact of mountaintop removal. Our talk with William Dereshevitz on why he left academia and why I do not always agree with everything our guests say. And today's conversation with Brianna on the archaeological history of personhood and abortion. So my week in hell started with, if you tuned in to the beginning of this week, gunshots outside my front door and ended with receiving a newspaper in the mail that's clearly nothing but Republican propaganda, opposition to pandemic safety protocols and fear-mongering of crime, racism, and it lacked a masthead, so you have no idea of who published this thing. Also on Patreon this week, we are playing an interview from back in December of 2005 with N. Paul Divacar, a founding member of the National Campaign for Dalit Human Rights, who currently works for the campaign as an advocate for Dalit rights, the economic and economic rights expert and a human rights defender. He is also the general secretary of the National Campaign for Dalit Human Rights. He was recently voted by India's Outlook magazine as one of the 50 most influential Dalit leaders in the country. And for those of you who don't know, you may know the word Dalit as something that is far more unpleasant to say, but it is the uh, local term for what we in the West, unfortunately, have dubbed untouchables. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code and giving you a, that gives you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but as I said, you get access to over 200 past Patreon podcasts. But you can only hear all of that by subscribing at Patreon dot com slash this is hell and please subscribe because we really want to continue paying the crew a living wage we cannot do that without your support coming up jeff with the moment of truth the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell and we will be announcing this week's winner we'll also tell you what's happening on next week's this is hell live from hangover country this is hell and dan i know you have hefe on the line what? Super Truth, the Phantom Loaf. If you're right-brained, you'll see a fish. If you're left-brained, you'll see a mermaid. Myrtle Edelweiss looked at the assemblage of gestural lines in the picture. In the image they formed, she saw no fish. Neither did she perceive a mermaid. What she saw was the head of a kangaroo. What did it mean? Was she right-brained or left-brained? One day Myrtle was at work at Nordnik High School coaching the varsity football team. While demonstrating to her beefy players the correct way for a linebacker to plunge ahead at the snap of the ball, 
She received a concussion from a slab of a gristle named Artie Sniggenbotham. Myrtle was rushed to the emergency room at Sleater Sinai Sloter Kinnering, unable to recall her own name. The attending physician, Dr. Elaine Bryant O'Brain, did an MRI of Myrtle's skull, then an ultrasound, then a spectrograph, then an encephaloschmephalograph, then a spirograph, then a titration test, then a pH test, then an EEG, then a BB King, then an insufferable lightus portmanteaubleronograph. Every image, regardless of what test was done, showed one miraculous fact. Between the two hemispheres of Myrtle's brain lay a third lobe, nestled between them like a summer sausage between two napping, hairless, sharp-hair-wrinkled guinea pigs. Dr. O'Brain called it the third lobe. It became known in neurological literature as the Edelweiss O'Brain lobe. The third lobe was cooler, though. But what was the function of this extra loaf, or lobe, in the brain of Myrtle Edelweiss? How had this third loaf been acquired? How long had it been among the payload of Myrtle Edelweiss's cranium? Did it confer any other advantages to her besides the obvious one of allowing a third interpretation of an ambiguous figure meant to elicit one of two specific interpretations? What good was this third loaf, if any? For the next three years, O'Brain conducted a wide-ranging study of people who saw a kangaroo head instead of either a mermaid or a fish in the picture that gave Myrtle Edelweiss a bit of agito. Various types of brain scans revealed that the majority of these specimens had the summer sausage-shaped third loaf. What else did they have in common? There was no single phenotype, genotype, ethnicity, religion, or economic class they shared, although the preponderance of specimens were of what was once known as the white people and belonged to an economic class of owners of modest homes and owner-operators of small businesses with three or fewer employees, most of them stakeholders in corporations, consisting only of a single employee, themselves. Most in the sample of some 50,000 individuals identified themselves as 1. Thinking for themselves, 2. Loving their country, 3. Being more compassionate than average, 4. Being more intelligent than average, 5. Being more health conscious than average, 6 being of above average health, seven, having a greater sense of fairness than average. Remarkably, a large percentage of the control group, those without lobes, answered the same way. It was the last two questions where the difference was starker. Number eight, considering themselves members of an oppressed group. The only members of the control group, those without a loaf, 
who answered this way were actual members of a group self-identifying as other than white Christian, able-bodied, heterosexual, or man, born man more specifically. The last question, question 9, was the key marker for difference. 9. Believing the nation needs the guidance and discipline of a strong, stern, authoritarian leader. No member of the control group answered that they believed this statement. Every member of the loaf bearers or loafers did. That was the difference. Focusing closer on this particular question revealed another difference. When asked if they considered compassion a quality of strength in a leader, all the non-loafers answered affirmatively. All the loafers answered that compassion was a weakness not just in a leader, but in a citizen. One loafer summarized it this way. At least Hitler had some backbone. Gandhi was a pussy. This might lead one to believe a cognitive dissonance might have been pointed out in their answer to question 3, that they considered themselves more compassionate than average. On closer questioning, however, the loafer's definition of compassion applied only to such feelings extended to those within their own group, however they might define those limits. Not so with the non-loafers. In her conclusion to her abstract on the paper she published in the Journal of Psychiatric Conclusions, O'Brien summarized the loafer's philosophy thus, Laws and authorities should protect those belonging to our group and control those outside our group. What exactly was it about this loaf of interposed brain matter that either exploited or caused these beliefs? The hypothesis was that the loaf acted as a kind of selective prism for signals between the hemispheres of the brain in a normal brain. Such signals were transported from hemisphere to hemisphere through a clump of nerve fibers called the corpus callosum. At one time, severing the corpus callosum was tried as a treatment for epilepsy. It was abandoned when experimentation revealed side effects, such as the inability of the subject to write and speak the same word when shown a different word to each eye. The communication between brain hemispheres turned out to have many subtle necessities in everyday understandings of perception. In loafers, the corpus callosum, was wrapped in the flesh of the intervening loaf. The loaf edited the signals between the hemispheres, censoring all but the perceptions that might lead a person to conclude otherwise than that an outgroup was a threat to one's in-group and that an authoritarian leader was required to restrict the activities of the outgroup. Further, Danger to the in-group was magnified or amplified or exaggerated at the expense of other mitigating information. The most mysterious part of the mystery came 18 months after the study when subsequent 
examination demonstrated that the loaves had disappeared. None of the loafers showed the presence or even a physical trace of the loaves. Unfortunately, the kind of thinking the loaves had vitalized did not likewise disappear. Elaine O'Brien now theorized that what remained was a phantom loaf, like the illusion of a limb that amputees may experience, the loafers retained the heavy-handed editor of perception in the form of an invisible prism, a prism of the mind, as it were. She therefore suggested changing the nomenclature from loafers to mental prismers. Although all of O'Brien's records of the material existence of the third loaf were destroyed in a group of suspicious thefts and the vandalisms everywhere those records were kept, the phenomenon of the mental prism is super true and remains a threat to civil society to this day. And this has been the moment of truth. Yeah, good day. So I'm trying to figure out the accent that you're working on there. And is it Oh, I don't know, man. Is it Quebecois? <laughs> you know what? You know what? Yeah, I think it's like Peter Lorre during doing a Quebecois accent. I think that you and I are kind of uh, you know, we were raised on watching CBC and listening to Canadian radio. I think that we oh, both yeah. think that a French accent is a Quebecois accent. One thing that I would uh, just, I'm not, you know, this is just notes that you can use in the future. Oh, please, please. I'm open to notes. Uh, when you say, as a Quebecois, when you say the word limb, it's pronounced limb. <laughs> I just, I don't want people to think I'm saying limbo. Oh, that's a good point. because we, I don't want people to limbo. Because we have had guests on our uh, show in the past who are uh, French-Canadian who have, uh, when they say bomb, they say bomba. Oh, yes. And my favorite is, of course, analysis. Analysis is a, is, you know what was, you know where I learned, not from the CBC, but I think I learned Quebecois from Cheech and Chong. <laughs> was that i don't remember a, I, I i don't remember i don't remember i think it's on it's in it's in it's on the record big bamboo but i remember listening to this one <laughs> the one that comes with a gigantic rolling paper yeah yeah and it was I, I don't know cheech was doing a a french canadian accent for some reason <laughs> and i would just listen to that over and over and of course i would hear it on the cbc and the other canadian canadian radio oh remember how bad the royal air farce was i do not <laughs> was it as bad as the capital steps <laughs> yes i saw some capital <laughs> steps the other day and i was oh, wishing how? i was watching an episode of beachcombers <laughs> oh man um, you uh, know we had up with people come to my come to our school oh you did uh, yeah but it was, yeah, even then, I think I think I was like eight years old, and even then, I was like, "This makes me want to vomit." <laughs> I wasn't raised well, though. I was raised by, you know, feral dogs, as I remember. Yeah, well, Jews of uh, bitter and resentful temperament, <laughs> you know, they, because they they were raised by people afraid of the evil eye. 
So in order not to court the evil eye, you got to complain about everything. Otherwise, the evil eye will think things are going well for you <laughs> and take it away. My uh, dad would tell me that my grandmother, who was of Roma descent, uh, he would always tell or always tell us stories about the evil eye, and you have to be you know careful about the evil eye. And I never knew what the evil eye was. And then my dad said, "I'll give you the evil eye," and he gave me the stink eye, which is a level of the evil eye, but it was very yeah. creepy. And he made sure that I knew how to give people the evil eye, and I've done it at times, or the stink eye, whatever you want to call it, and I've done it at times, and it's usually ended up in fisticuffs, my friend, fisticuffs. Well, you know, the Detroit leg will get you into those. <laughs> the Detroit leg. You're one of the first people I've ever seen do that, which is fantastic. <laughs> somebody, You're mad at somebody in a car. Uh, you want to end road rage. You just stick one leg out of the driver's side door so it looks like you're getting out of the car. The road rage kind of comes down at that point. Yep, everything cools off. <laughs> really cools off. All right, especially when they... I mean, the car has to be stopped. All yeah, right? You don't just yeah, stick you just, your leg yeah. out of a moving no, car. No, it's not a marine roll. No. All right, Jeffy, until next yep. time. What? Stay beautiful. Oh, man, that means I have to get beautiful. <sighs> You're halfway there. Don't worry. Yeah, okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And share with us the rest of our listeners' answers. This week's question from hell is, what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? We got a new answer come in by email from Public Universal Comrade, who answers Public Universal Comrade <laughs> to ac- to access the rich and questions and powerful of insight circle of this is hell. Oh, all right. Is it working? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. Neil C. But very nice attempt at it. Yeah, not too shabby. Yeah. Neil C. says Narcissus. <laughs> I thought I was gonna be maybe Spoons for Hands man. <laughs> oh. Superhero. Right. With Spoons for Hands. Yeah. Rich and powerful need yogurt. They need pudding. Sure. Here I come. So that's your persona. That that's you're my persona. With. Okay. So not Edward Scissorhands, but spoons for hands, man. <laughs> All right. Totally different person. Completely different tool. Yeah. So the a- answers I liked most were well. First, uh, Dan, could you repeat the inter- the uh, response from Petre earlier? Because I really did like that one. Sure thing. Petre came in with that caliente one. Max Power, CEO of Pharmadyne Limited, maker of wep- weaponized pharmaceuticals. Also, I'm a pretty good connect for hookers and blow on K Street. <laughs> I also like the one about Werner von Braun. That was a good one. Kim G saying dog walker. That was great. Neil C saying Narcissus, which I really liked as well. That would get you into the uh, halls of the rich and famous. Uh, Andrew S saying a teenage masseuse, which is just disgusting. Dan K having the very timely response of saying he would be going as Herschel Walker's love child. No, not that one. Not that one either. Nope. Nope. Yeah, that one. Uh, Krimsky K saying British peerage salesman, which would be an awesome job. The great part is it's not illegal. They do it all the time, says Krimsky. Sloan, who had spent hours and hours crafting his response to this week's question from hell by saying Sir Yachty McYachty III. Chris K saying NFT creator incubator. Hypocrite reader saying Fidelio. And I really, really liked Paolo's answer, patient zero. But there's a conflict of interest there, right? Paolo Sorbeo was a guest on our show a little while ago. And so that people might say, oh, you're just giving it to him because he was on your show. But Paolo might say, 
hey, you didn't give it to me because you know I'm in Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or wherever the hell I am right now. So the postage on my gift would be kind of high and so it would affect your bottom line. So you're not picking me because of the delivery cost of my prize for winning the question from hell. Well, all those conflicts of interest aside, Petre, we loved your caliente answer, and you are the winner of this week's question from hell. Congratulations. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell uh, swag you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support. And uh, we will get you uh, your prize in the mail post-haste. Again, the question from hell this week is, what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit uh, access to the circles of the rich and powerful? Uh, that's the great thing, for me at least, when it comes to the radio show. It's the great thing about hosting a radio show that hosts uh, guests who question capitalism. I don't have to use some dazzling persona to get into the circles of the rich and famous. All I have to do is tell them that I'm actually a spy for capitalism, and voila, I'm in. By the way, I'm not really a spy for capitalists. Or am I? Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. And this week, all of your answers were, again, far better than mine. Dan, who do we have scheduled to be on the show next week? I apologize for this long bio for the first guest, but there's a punchline at the end that is worth the whole read. All right, it's kind of long. Senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute, Sean O'Leary, who has posted a new report entitled Misplaced Faith, How Policymakers' Belief in Natural Gas is Driving Rural Pennsylvania into an economic dead end. You may remember Sean being on the show last year when we spoke to him about his then-just-published study, Appalachia's Natural Gas Counties, contributing more to the U.S. economy and getting less in return. The Ohio River Valley Institute is a nonprofit research and communication center that strives to provide sound research for a more sustainable, equitable, democratic, and prosperous Appalachia. Sean's focus on energy... Sean's focus is on energy and petrochemicals. You can find out more about the Institute at OhioRiverValleyInstitute.org. And this is where it gets great. Sean is a West Virginia native and author of the State of My State blog and newspaper column, which ran in the Martinsburg, West Virginia Journal between 2010 and 2014. Sean is also the author of a book by the same name, The State of My State, which was published in 2013. You can visit the State of My State blog at thestateofmystate.com. Sean is also a playwright and author of six plays that have been professionally produced. They include Pound, about the poet Ezra Pound, which starred Christopher, Christopher Lloyd <laughs> in an off-Broadway production in 2018. Follow Sean on Twitter at Sean H. O'Leary1. See? That was Christopher good. Lloyd. With his bug eyes. I know. Can you imagine? I'm going to go see a play called Pound with Christopher Lloyd. I do not want to see that play. No, it's about Ezra Pound. Oh. I think I'd see Now it. I'm interested. Yeah, I don't know what the play Pound is about. Ropey. <laughs> exactly. We'll also have on... Lindy Bergson, author of Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. Lindsay is a writer, oral historian, and 2018 National Geographic Explorer based in British Columbia. She writes about the environment and, is in, and its entanglement with history, culture, and identity. That was actually on our list of potential guests to have on the show, and then Lindsay reached out to us, so thank you, Lindsay, for reaching out to us to be on the show this or next week. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Thanks to this week's producers, Richard
Richard Norwood, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. As as always, thanks to both Alexander Jerry and Sebastian Vuper for all of their behind-the-scenes work. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth. Ronaldo for this week in Rotten History and to Theron Humiston just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and see you tonight during our weekly This Is Hell office hours now back at their regular time, Wednesday evenings beginning at 6 p.m., going till at least 10 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Thanks to Dan Hill for producing today's show. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.